This is Julio Mondragon from Buff and Chai Manufacturing, and I'm William Lara with Miami Lux. Welcome to the Renny Dolo Podcast. Well, hey, uh, let's go ahead and we'll kick it off. Uh, good morning, everybody. This is the Rennie Doyle podcast and live event. And we've got somebody that's really, uh, matter of fact, it, 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 I, I know Mark's name for years. And then uh, he started popping up on social media several years ago. And then a, a program car, called Cars Yeah popped up. And then I got an invite to be a guest. And I was like, whoa, this is, <laughs> I get to be on with Mark Green. And, 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 and I was so excited. And it was so much fun. Uh, but the, he's the founder, producer, and host of Cars Yak Podcast. There's a lot more to him, a lot more depth we're going to go into and, uh, and talk to him. But, Mark, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here, you guys. Good to see you. Good morning. Good morning. You, so, you got me up early. Yeah, we did. Now, so look, look at this room. I mean, so I've got to – I'm going to take an, – and, and now we've already talked about Chris has – you know, he's a car nerd. Um, I've got ADD, so I'm going to go off of it. That looks like a cool room. You've got some cool stuff going on in that room. Well, um, what I did was I commandeered the front of my home when I started this podcasting concept of mine. And we had long years ago added onto the back of the house. So, you know, in a lot of houses, when you have kids back when our kids were home and little, um, your living room kind of becomes the no man's room. Everybody lives in the kitchen, right? Yeah. And so we just kind of made it a grand room back there. And this room just kind of became this empty space. So, I commandeered it. It's at the front of the house. So I have a beautiful view out my window of giant fir trees where I live in Gig Harbor. It's kind of like living in a forest, uh, although it's on the sound. And uh, yeah, so what I did was I just thought, well, okay. And I don't do live, a lot of this live stuff with video very often, but I have done more and more. I've been invited on shows and things and did a virtual wine tasting a couple weeks ago. So I thought, okay, I got to kind of make myself look good here. I'm kind of a design guy anyway. That was my background. So yeah, I've got my, uh, let's see, other finger here, my Fender Stratocaster Hot Rod Edition. It's a limited edition guitar I got about 15 years ago. I played guitar growing up and I had a little garage band kind of thing and stuff. And then uh, the photograph there uh, is actually an illustration by an old friend of mine who sadly we lost last year. Uh, Steve does some really cool or did some really cool uh, drawings of cars. So you can send him a picture of your car and he created an illustration. So we'll talk about my turbo. So that's what that is. And the pedal car is something I bought for my kids. And if I'm ever blessed with little grandkids, they can have that and pedal around the street and have some fun and, uh, wow. and some other wow. stuff. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. Let's, let's dive into it. So Chris, you got some things that we're going to go over. I've got, I got some things that we're going to go over. So let's jump on into it. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I think so. Let's do it. So founder, producer of a uh, host of Cars Yeah podcast, producer and co-host of the Buy, Sell, Hold podcast with Keith Martin, publisher of Sports Car Market Magazine. Yeah. So you're, you're a busy guy. I am. You know, as if doing five shows a week wasn't enough, I took on doing another show this year. And if you want to hear a little bit about that background, I'll share it with you. Yeah, let's do that. So uh, over a year ago, I've known Keith Martin with Sports Car Market Magazine for a long, long time. Seen him at car shows and things like that. I've been doing my podcast for six years now. And I pitched an idea to him to start a podcast for Sports Car Market. 
And this was over a year ago. And he liked the idea. We chatted a little bit about it. And then sadly, he had a stroke. And so left side of his body was basically paralyzed. And so he spent months and months recuperating. He's got come a long way, still has a little way to go. But so back uh, last part of last later part of last year, he touched base with me again. I'd been reaching out saying, how you doing, Keith? And he said, hey, that idea for a podcast, let's talk about doing that. So we came up with the concept of buy, sell, hold, which is a part of his magazine. His magazine's all about market cost of cars, what the values are and so forth. So we came up with this whole thing. I said, look, I know how to do this. So I'll produce it and I'll do all the work, all the heavy lifting. And you just dial in. We touch base with people who are experts in the automotive sector of valuations of cars. So we talk to collectors, buyers, um, auction houses, people that buy and sell high-end cars, fabricators. And uh, this morning after I'm done with you, we're going to be interviewing Chip Connor. Uh, Chip is a big time guy who's uh, probably got one of the best car collections on the planet, um, raced for a while, runs a huge international global company. Um, so we're going to interview him. But we've had people like Craig Jackson on the show and collector John Shirley, who's up here in the Northwest, a variety of people. Uh, Bill Warner from Amelia Island Concord was our first guest. And um, yeah, so we do that once a week. So that added to my five shows a week for Cars Yeah. And it's just a different show than Cars Yeah, but both Keith and I are on the show. So we talk to our guests together and we have a series of questions about the best car they've ever bought, um, the car they've sold, they wish they hadn't, and the car they would hold on to. And then we dive into their business a little bit, kind of like what I do on Cars Yeah, but you know, being a guest of mine, Rennie, is I dig a little deeper into not only people's businesses, but also into their personal life and challenges and things they've done and collections they have. So Buy, Sell, Hold has been really cool. It kind of tags along with Cars Yeah, so you can find it on my website, Sports Car Market Magazine's website, um, and uh, listen to the shows there or on your mobile podcast app, because I'm, I think we're on about 30 of them now. So wow. we're all over the place. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so Chris, you were amazed at one fact that when we read through this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, we got a little echo here. Hold on. Feedback. Um, I'll, I'll work on that. But you've interviewed over 1,500 guests so far, huh? Yes. In fact, this afternoon, I'm going to be interviewing Megan Meyer. She's a young woman who's a drag racer, a uh, big-time drag racer. She'll be my, let's see, 1,593rd guest on Cars. Yeah. So, Little did I know when I started this six years ago, I, I kind of thought I'd do this for a year or two or something like that, um, that I'd talk to this many people. Uh, it's getting a little hard to keep up with how many people I've had on the show. Uh, just this morning, someone Facebook messaged me, have you had so-and-so on your show? And I had to like, well, I better look this up. Uh, you know, it's getting hard to keep track of over 1,500. I'm closing in on 1,600 guests. So uh, I've been very fortunate. I've talked to some amazing people. And before, before uh, Chris jumps into the next question, I want to make a statement more than anything, <clears throat> excuse me, and that is if you're listening to this and you're in the automotive care industry, a.k.a. the detailing and so forth, this guy started out as one of us. So we'll go into that here in a little while, but if you're thinking, oh, yeah. oh, man, this guy's you know way out of the universe compared to what I've done, no, you better listen because it started – at ground zero was with exactly what, you know, we all started out with. And so if you're thinking, you know, Oh man, I mean, <laughs> why are they talking to this guy? <laughs> yeah. This, this guy. So I want you to wrap your head around this as you guys are listening, because this dude started out as a micro and he's built himself into what he is today. 
So I wanted to make that statement real quick right off the bat. So Well, and also in the car detailing world, because I started detailing cars when I was 12 years old, yeah. uh, started a business that actually took me through and paid for my college education, which led to a career in advertising and marketing, which led to starting with Grio's Garage when they were virtually starting, uh, was there for 20 plus years, ended up running the company as a president, uh, developed the car care line, all the products. So yeah, we'll get into all of that. But yeah, so I've got a little bit of credibility when it comes to wax on, wax off. Man, well, no why? So I, I wanted to get that across right now so that, you know, if you're thinking that this guy's, you know, big universe things, yeah, he is, but everybody's got to start somewhere. And this guy started right where many of us started, and that was ground zero with just loving cars and cleaning them up. So, sorry. Well, to- no, I- it's good. I- and it's, I tell you, it started with my dad helping me make some business cards. My first business was called Auto Care. Mm-hmm. And my dad did a drawing of a Porsche Turbo, which is exactly like the car back here, uh, except it's first gen turbo because that was my car of passion. And I would get on my Schwinn Stingray, which I was my paperboy bike, and I'd ride around my town and look for cool cars. And I'd put my card on their their windshield on their under their wiper. And hey, did, that's, you, did you save yeah. your Stingray? Yeah, I wish I had. No, when we moved, I gave that to one of the neighbors. I saved mine. Good for you. I had it. But nah, you know, here's the bad part. I grew up in a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty challenged area. And my mom came up one year for Christmas and they broke into her house while she was gone. Oh. That was one of the, uh, one of the things that was, uh, was taken was the original Stingray. Yeah. So I was pretty devastated, but. Yeah. Well, no, I gave, uh, when we moved, uh, one of our moves, um, Gave it to a neighbor kid, so uh, I'd kind of outgrown it. But that bike got me all the way through five years of being a paper boy, seven days a week, getting up at four o'clock in the morning. Talk about teaching discipline. Kind of sad that 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 whole thing has gone away because being a paper boy taught me more about interactive with clients, which helped me in my car detailing business. Also, I made flyers that I put in my newspapers. My paper, my paper manager allowed me to do it. And so I delivered that to all my customers and that created a whole bunch of clients for me as well. And, and that's what finally I said, you know what, I'm making so much money waxing cards. Why am I delivering papers? Well, you know, it's funny. <laughs> my, my, my older brother's eight years older than me and he had a paper route. You know what his paper route did for me? Convinced me not to have a paper route. <laughs> it's, it's a tough, it's a very tough job, you know, and luckily mine was Southern California where I grew up. So the weather was not like up here where it rains half the year in the Northwest Pacific Northwest, but uh, it teaches you how to interact with customers. It teaches you discipline. You have to deliver that paper. Cause I'll tell you, if you're not at somebody's doorstep by a certain time, they're standing there with their cup of coffee going, uh, where are you? I need my paper, you know? <laughs> so. Right. Right. Okay. Sorry, Chris. I, I took off <laughs> a little tangent. So back, oh, back, no, you're, back you're- to you. You're good. Well, you you know you brought us to the the next thing. You you actually mentioned uh, 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 it's it's Grios, right? I wanted to get the yeah. announce the, the way you announce it out there correctly because I know everybody says it a little differently. Well, it's funny because we worked and worked on that. Uh, Grio actually is a name that comes from Africa originally. It's it's it ended up evolving into French, but which I think is where some lineage of their family is. But a Grio is a person that would go from town to town 
who would tell stories. That was kind of their job, their career. And there's still, if you, if you Google Grio and you bypass Grio's garage and car care, you get to Grio. You see Grio bands, uh, typically African brand uh, bands, musical bands and so forth. Uh, the funny thing about that was that the script in the catalog that we did for years, uh, they're still doing a catalog, uh, was first person. So when I met Richard, I was in the advertising industry and we landed him as an account. And I started writing the copy. So I had to act like I was him because he had a style that he wanted to promote of, hey, I'm out there working on my vehicle. I'm using this new product. You should too. So I'd kind of put my Richard head on when I would write the copy. So in essence, I became a griot, a storyteller, because that's the way we sold our products, which was very different than the career I had in advertising where it was problem solution. This was more, I use it, you should too. So I had to kind of put a different kind of mindset on, but that's okay. I mean, that's the way it was because I designed the catalogs and even the early days did a lot of, of the photography. And then that evolved into brand development. I traveled all over the world looking for cool products to brand and put in our catalog and sell to people. So it was fun. I got to combine my creative side of marketing, which I did for 11 years out of college with my passion for cars. Uh, so it was a really, really fun time for me to get involved in, in all that. And if you go out in my garage, it's just it's full of stuff that we sold over the years. A lot of things that aren't sold anymore, but um, every time I look down at the flooring or a tool or a wrench or something I found in the black forest of Germany, a wee screwdriver, I kind of smile and go, oh yeah, I remember that trip. That was pretty fun. Wow. Well, you know what the good news, uh, Chris, is I've been saying the name right for a long time. Grio. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. We heard, we heard it all. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's, that's the good news. So. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, so Chris going to talk a little bit about education, your education and background. Yep. And then I'm yeah, going yeah. to have a very pointed question for you. Okay, cool. <clears throat> yeah, uh, you know, one of the things uh, that we have listed here is that you're a graduate of San Diego State University. Um, yep. You've got a, a major in what, graphic design and then a minor in business? Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. In fact, uh, I was originally going to UCSD. I grew up in La Jolla, California, and UCSD, the campus, was right there in La Jolla. So I could ride my bike. I was living at home my first year, could ride my bike to school. Um, and since I was paying for most of my own college uh, with my detailing funds, uh, that worked out really well. Um, that school ended up not really doing what I wanted. I didn't know what I wanted to do my first year, like a lot of students. I, I think I was a declared major in communications, which look at that. It's what I'm doing now. Uh, who'd have thought? But I just thought, okay, these communication majors and professors are wacky. I don't want to do this. They didn't really have a good business school there. They had an art school, but it was more fine art. It wasn't graphic design, advertising. And I got, I kind of started getting into that a little bit. And San Diego State, which was further away, did have that. Plus, they had a business school. So I could combine both of those things. So half the week I was going to the art side of the campus. Uh, and then the other half I'd put on a, you know, white shirt and go to the business side and wouldn't tell them I was over in the art side, the other part of the, the, the season, because they go, those art people are fruity. They don't know what they're doing. But I tell you what was great was because uh, since I was trying to pay my way through school, I would land real accounts. Like I would do logo design, um, uh, letterhead design, signage design, advertising, whatever was needed. And I convinced my professors to let me use those real projects as my school projects. So I didn't have double work. So I'd say, okay, you know, this month I have these three projects. Can I use those as my school projects? And almost every professor said, yeah, sure. And then I would get up right. in front of the class and talk about the real world 
like what you have to deal with with clients, uh, the drawing horses and unicorns. Yeah, you're not going to make any money doing that. Uh, you have to deal with, you know, sometimes boring stuff. And most of what I did was real estate focused, uh, which strangely, when I graduated, I got a job at an agency, small agency, and we did mostly commercial real estate work for developers and brokers. Um, so I don't know how that kind of worked, I guess, because maybe that's why I got the job because my portfolio had some real world brochures and things for um, real estate development. But I knew a lot of people in that industry anyway, and a lot of them made money and they had drove nice cars. So I was detailing their cars on the weekends. So mm. kind of double dipping into all the different sectors and so forth. But the school, the business background, of course, everybody should have some kind of business background because whatever you do, it ends up being business. I, I love what you guys teach and Rennie, where you teach the business side as well as the tactical side. You know, my dad grew up on a farm and he always said, you know, have something that you can manually do to fall back on if your business career is waning. So waxing and detailing cars was something that I got into. And if you want to hear how that happened, I can tell you about a 450 well, SL and Mr. Swanser. Well, let me tell you, that was the next question. So leading into college, so forth, so like so many of us, uh, you know, you jump into a detailing business. So first, my first question would be why, what was your why back then? Yep. And then, and tell us about the company and what it, it did for you. Sure. Um, well, you have to go back before high school to junior high. And my next door neighbor was a FBI agent where I grew up. Wow. Cool dude. Yeah. He was not married. He was kind of this mystery guy, you know, FBI agent. And in 1973, he bought the first 450 SL that was delivered to Heinz Geetz uh, Mercedes Benz in La Jolla, California. It was a 74 model, but they came out late 73. And I remember going over there and looking at this beautiful car. And I said, Mr. Swanser, I wonder if I could detail your car for you. He goes, yeah, sure. Because I was always cleaning my parents' cars and my bike. And I hadn't really done detailing for anybody. So I didn't know what I was doing. So he let me back the car out of his garage and pull it in front of my house, which you know, I was 14, I think, at the time. And so uh, I spent all day. And I didn't know what I was doing. My dad took me down to the parts store and we bought some wax and cleaner and I just did the best I could but I worked on every little thing I was always really asked my mom very meticulous kid uh Bobby was potty trained too young according to Freud so <laughs> you get that uh you know that anal retentiveness that all of his detailers have um yeah there's a little little scoop for you I don't think I've ever said that to anybody uh you pull the best out I of don't it, think right? we've had anybody say that to us you <laughs> yeah know? well if you study Sigmund <laughs> Freud <laughs> so at any rate um uh, in fact it's funny because I was just writing my weekly blog last night and I used a Freud quote not that one it was another one uh but at any rate um so I spent all day and I took the car back over and Mr. Swanser came out and he said, wow, this car looks better than when I got it. And I said, well, thank you. And I started to leave and he said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What do I owe you? And I said, you're going to pay me? And yeah. And he goes, well, I didn't expect you to spend all day on my car for free. And I went, oh, I, okay. How much? How much? And he goes, well, how about 20 bucks? Now this is 1973. Okay. So 20 bucks for a 14 year old kid. I, that was halfway to a brand new surfboard. Yeah. Like in one day. So I went running home. Plus he gave me a $5 tip. So I'm like, 
I was ecstatic. So I run home and, and my parents, we never, my parents never gave me allowance. It was just expected that you did work around the house. That's how you got fed and you got a bed, right? So I didn't get allowances or anything like that. I had to make my own money. So my dad said, you know, look like you were having fun out there. And I said, yeah, it was really cool. And he said, why don't you start your own business? Start doing this for other people. You have this paper route. You could advertise to all those customers. They all have a car that needs to be cleaned. We have neighbors on our street. And that's really how it started. And then eventually my dad helped me make some business cards. And as I mentioned earlier, I'd get on my Schwinn ring, go into town in La Jolla. And there was a lot of money in La Jolla. So I'd ride around and, oh, there's a cool black Porsche on her Mercedes. And even later, I had a lady who had one of the first Rolls-Royce Corniche convertibles, um, did her car. So it just started growing and growing and growing. And I had more business than I could do. And some of the kids, even at school that didn't really know me that well, because I always had money in my pocket, they thought I was a drug dealer. So I'd have people come up and say, you got any pot you can sell me? And I'm like, I don't smoke pot. And like, we well, always have money. And I go, that's because I work my ass off. I'm not laying around smoking pot. I'm working every afternoon after school and every weekend and nights and everything. So that is how I got started. And then I started learning about the different products. I never had a place like uh, Rennie's shop to go to, to, you know, learn about how to use things. I just had to experiment. And I remember having one car that the paint was so bad, I could not. And looking back now, it was not a car you could ever make shiny the paint was so far gone I worked all day I was literally in tears when I took the car back to the lady I said I can't make this shine and she goes it looks really good what are you talking about and uh but I said I the paint's gone I mean I tried and tried and it, it was single stage and every time I rub more it'd come off and I'd start freaking out I didn't use any machines ever it was all by hand yeah, yeah the machines came when I joined Grios and we we discovered random orbitals well, you know, back then that was the biggest thing was that, you know, it was a, it was a hand buff, you know, and I remember, and, you know, it was amazing how good you could get those old, you know, single stage, you know, uh, uh, cars looking, you know, yeah. I, mean, I grew up, this is our 67 behind us. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, and you, you could take in, uh, well, you know what, it looks good on camera. It's a <laughs> driver, uh, but it's, it's, she's ours and yeah. it's got really cool history and, uh, we, it's we, nice love, car. but we, um, you know, it was, people just don't understand. I mean, it was a lot of handwork back then and, and, and it was easier to obtain that, that, that shine with handwork back then uh, than it is now. We didn't have the, like you said, we didn't have the training. We didn't have the know-how. Uh, you know, my first job led after I started in the aircraft side. So six years after you did that, a kid up in Colton, you know, inland yeah. from you, yep. he started the same way, but on aircraft, my first car, you want to hear a funny story? Yeah. First car, the guy set me up. You know how he set me up? Is he asked me to do the engine. It was the first car ever detailed. So oh. he said, hey, will you detail the engine before you get started? And I said, well, yeah. Sure. <laughs> so I did it, and then I worked all day on the interior, and I, I did a nice hand buff job on the outside and dressed the tires up and got done, and, and it looked – I was really proud of myself. It was, yeah. a, uh, it was a Ford LTD. And it was cocoa brown, and the guy comes out and he looks at it and he looks. He says it looks good. He set me up because he walks out, he gets the key, and the car. You know, naturally the car won't start because I flooded it with water. It got oh, everything oh. wet, and he knew it. And he goes, "Well, kid, you broke my car. How can I pay you for all this work if you broke my car?" Oh, no. And I was so disappointed in myself, and I remember getting down 
And what he didn't know is I took my bicycle and I rode down to the end. I had a BMX bike and I rode down to the end of the street, got on my mongoose. And I was so upset that I had to calm down because I was crying. Yeah. And when I turned around, he was out there. He had taken the, 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 the cap off, you know, the air filter and everything else was probably blowing WD-40 into the carburetors. Yeah. Uh, Try everything out. I, I watched him start it. Yeah. That's, you know, I, that's sad, you know, to take advantage of a kid like that. I was pretty fortunate. I, I really don't recall ever having a client that was a pain. And I even got to a point in college where I had so many, I hired, started hiring some people to help me. Then I learned about employees. Yeah. <laughs> Employees that don't show up, uh, employees that don't do the kind of work that you want. Uh, yeah, and that I, I finally said, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm only going to work on cars I like. Yeah. And I remember getting calls from people, and I'd say, what kind of car do you have? Oh, I have a Buick uh, some, something. I said, I don't work on domestic cars. Wow. And the lady's like, what? <laughs> and I said, I, I only work on European sports cars. And she was all mad at me. And I ended up doing her car, actually, because, uh, you know, I just kind of backed down and said, okay, fine, I'll. Well, you know, funny though, the, what the guy didn't count on is that I, I grew up in Colton and I worked at a shop where I got my experience, where I got my wheel experience was we, we, we did low riders. And so Hector was, I thought an old guy back then in reality, he was probably in his forties. Yeah. And, uh, he heard the next day what I did and he goes, Hey, take me over to this guy's house. Oh, and, he helped uh, you out. Yeah. Hector got me my money. And, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. that guy ended up being a really good customer. I, I did that LTD uh, twice, two, two, two or three times a year. Uh, and it was a valuable lesson. I didn't take it as I got ripped off. I, I took it as that nobody took, no, no, it be, I became a little more street smart that day. Right. Yeah. Well, you do. Yeah, you do. I, it's like being a paper boy and you go up to collect and they turn the porch light off when you knock on the door. Yeah, you're exactly. like, uh, hello. Hey, I know you're in there. I just need $12. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. That's cool. So, so now you're, you're in college. I'm going to ask you a really tricky question. Okay. Before I do that, is that I, I, we've got so many similarities. Is that you know I got to college and I had a little bit of an attitude. You know, I, I always I always tell Rennie people, had an attitude. Chris, how could that be? <laughs> had an attitude. You, you never see it. And I had a, I had a poor guy's attitude because I had to oh. check my shoulder. You know, victim. Well, yeah. you know, not really a victim as I. I was scared to say anything. Oh. I was in an element that was a little over my head and I, and I made myself feel that way more is that I didn't feel deserving of, of this. I was a special ed kid. I had ADD and I was just scared to death to say the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. But here I, I'd sold my, I got to, I got to college and I'd sold my, my detailing company and I sold it for 96 K. And so I'd done pretty good. I, wow. I, I pull up to school I'm, I, I, I'm dead broke. I own a house. I own a 944. Life's good, but I don't have a dime to my name other than that, right? And I remember the professor, I was about through school, and I remember the professor telling us how small business that you'd never make a dime and that you'd just be creating a job for yourself and that if you were going to take and start small, it was you might as well basically go crawl in a hole. And and I got this was a professor. This was a professor. Wow. And I, I basically I the the uh, you know, I stood up, I disagreed, I got tossed out of the class, and I never went back. So I didn't finish my degree. Yeah. So flash forward, we've got a great program through the National Guard. 40, oh, yeah. 40 plus years old, I finished my bachelor's degree. 
Uh, 53, <laughs> I finished my master's degree. There you go. Uh, but what, what, did, what did college do for you? Let, let's, let's talk about somebody that's on the fence that, that maybe doesn't, you know, I agree, man. When you and I went through school, we could actually work our way through oh, and yeah. come out of it with very little or no debt. That's still a possibility because my, my kids have all done it through what's called the United States uh, military. And, and they've right. all went in and did their job and got their GI bills and they've got great educations uh, and trades for their time in the military. Mm -hmm. uh, even, I, I even had one daughter this last week, last Friday, was commissioned as a, as a lieutenant in the Air Force. Yeah, I saw that. Congratulations. Yeah, pretty exciting. Very. For, the, for the young person or maybe even the older person, that is saying, really, do I need college? What would be your answer to that? Well, it really depends on your situation. Uh, you're right. College, when I went to school, a quarter tuition at UCSD was $370. Wow. So wow. I only had to wax a few cars to cover the whole quarter, then another car to buy my books, which were like 10 bucks a piece. That ages me, but that was a long time ago. My children uh, graduated from college. One graduated four years ago. One graduated uh, nine years ago. Uh, I, I paid for their college. It was private out-of-state school, grossly, grossly overpriced. I won't say it was bad because I, I had dedicated that my wife and I, we said, we're going to pay for your college education. We don't want you to have debt. We don't want to have debt. So we had been smart, saved, and we pulled it off. You know, I had to sell a couple cars to do it, but we did it. Um, but when those tuition bills came, I, I would really look at them and go, God, is this really, this isn't worth it. And I feel bad for young people today because, um, and we could do a whole show on this and I won't get too deep into it, but the fact that um, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mae is willing to put young people into massive debt so easily um, and loan them money without any kind of expectation of how they're going to pay it back. I mean, they don't even have a discussion saying, what's your major going to be? Are you going to be able to pay this 50, 100, 200, 300, half million dollars back? Oh, you want to be a school teacher? Well, that's noble, but you know, they don't make that much money. Um, I don't know that you want to graduate with $150,000 in debt maybe that's not a right way to do it. So I can't really answer that question for anybody other than I think you really need to analyze what you want to do. And a lot of people at a young age have no clue. I didn't my first year of college. So yeah, a wise thing I think to do would be to go to a junior college and get your breath uh, studies out of the way. That basic stuff that they charge you massive amount at a big university for Go to a junior college and experiment there with what do I want to be? And then also spend time going out and talking to people in the profession you think you want to do. And most people, professionals, old guys like us, we'll talk to you. We'll share what we've done with you. We'll give you ideas and then you can take those ideas back and formulate your own. I'm a big um, fan of... Um, the dirty jobs guy, Mike Rowe, and his whole promotion right now of blue collar work is okay. You know, I think we've been, a lot of people have been tricked into saying that that kind of work is not of value. Uh, being a detailer, huge value. You make people happy. You can have your own career. Um, and being your own boss provides you with a lot of freedoms that working for somebody else. And I think there's also a bit of a, a misnomer that working for somebody else or a company, you're safe and secure. You're not. I mean, things can happen. Look what's going on right now. How many people are out of work right now because of a virus? Who, who'd have thought? I mean, 
you know, seven months ago, this country was kicking on all 12 cylinders. Uh, you could go get a job anywhere if you were willing to work. And then this thing hits us back in 08, 09, the recession walloped everybody. Who'd have thought that would have happened? So I think you really have to think through what you want to be in those two years that are JC. You can still live at home. I know that sounds horrible. You're not going to be partying at school. Well, that's not what school's for. Uh, school is to go and learn and figure out what you want to do in your life. And I've known a lot of people that have gotten degrees that ended up doing completely different things. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of uh, opportunities there, but I just would encourage people do not get in debt because to come out of college with a mortgage hanging around your neck. And if you look at these loans that Freddie and Fannie, they're eight and a half percent loans. My gosh. I mean, you could put a half million dollars in the a savings account and not even earn a percent. So, you know, you can work your way through. I had a friend whose brother worked his way through medical school. It took him twice as long. I mean, that's a long haul, but he did it without debt. Uh, today, he's an old guy like us. Um, he's a neurosurgeon and it, I mean, but he did it. We used to, we used to call him Doc Duve because we're like, there's no way you're going to get through medical school, but, but he figured out a way to do it. Uh, but if you're fortunate to have great parents like me, um, you know, who will pay for your college, um, you know, say thank you to them because uh, I know my kids do that all the time. They have friends who are, have been out of school for five years and they're still paying off that debt. And it's just until they're 40 years old. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a, not a good thing. So yeah. uh, col college, you need to really analyze this. You really need to think it through. And that professor did you such a huge disservice. And you know that to tell you that small business isn't small business is what drives this entire country. It was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I walked <laughs> out of there and guess what I did? Yeah, I started, started a small business. Company, you know? Yeah. And that led into another small company and that led into two or three more. And, you know, I've uh, thank God, thank, thank God that I've never shut a business down. I've been able to either successfully run it yeah. and sell it or still run it today. And so- yeah. Wow, well, congratulations. Know, That's not easy. No, it's not. And especially, you know, coming from, you know, I had a lot of street degrees. Uh, you know, I had education. Here's the deal, though. My point, I'd love to just get, you know, your yay or nay on this. My point was, I love that you mentioned this. I think that junior colleges are the biggest crown jewel. Matter of fact, our daughter that's 16, she just lived through, you know, her sweet 16. She's got a car that she couldn't drive. She still doesn't have her license because DMV's so backed up. Oh, yeah. Um, but this little girl just announced, she goes, you know, I'm going to go on home studies this next year. This whole corona thing changed my mind. I'm going to go to school and junior college at the same time. And she says, my goal is to come out with my, my two-year degree the same week that I graduate from high school. And so I'm like, <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, I mean, where did well, this come from? You, you did know? something right there for sure. I know my daughter, when she went to college, she wanted to get two degrees in four years. And her, her advisor said, yeah, I don't know if you can pull that off. And that means you have to take all serious classes. There's no slack, you know, those so-called slack classes. And then your senior year, half your senior, you're not even going to class. And, and she said, no, that's what I want to do. And, and pr very proud of her that she pulled that off uh, and did it um, because I felt like, okay, that was very expensive for me, but she got two degrees out of it. Uh, you know, she's employed, she's doing well. And, uh, and all is good. So uh, yeah, you have to really analyze that. But uh, you know, being even if, when you go back to Grios when I started, it was there was just four of us. The, the company was wow. very very small. Yeah, wow. it, 
Yeah, there was just Richard, another guy, a secretary, myself, and then a guy who would come by after school and pack up the orders for that day. So, you know, it was very small the way it started, and uh, it just took time. It, it, it built. We had this kind of joke about a 20-year plan, but every year it was the 20-year plan. It just kept being a 20-year 20 uh, 20-year plan. But unfortunately, um, he had some family money, so he had money wasn't a huge problem, but we had to be responsible and I was in charge of a PL statement. So I had to make things make sense. You know, we weren't just throwing dollar bills around. So, but even yeah. when you think about people who have great wealth that start businesses um, you know, that misnomer that people with a lot of money just put it under their pillow and they don't do anything with it. They're always making it work, making that capital Absolutely. work for them. You know, it's, it's just, and it's part of why it's good to earn a business degree. But here's one thing before I forget it right now, this is one of the best times in mankind that you can go out and create something using this marvelous little tool we have here called a computer or your phone or, you know, and the fact that I'm doing what I'm doing is still kind of every day I go, what the heck is going on here? I mean, uh, you know, we're having a conversation here. People can join in from all over the world. I interview people from all over the world every day. And the fact that we, you can create something online that you own, that you can grow and sell at some point, um, and you can do it without a lot of smarts, really. I mean, I wasn't that technically savvy when I started what I was doing, I watched a lot of YouTube videos on how to record shows, how to build, I built my own website. I'd never done, I can design well, but I'd never actually physically built a website, learned how to do that. There's so much out there now for you compared to when you and I were little with those stupid Encyclopedia Britannicas that we couldn't afford them. So I had to borrow the neighbors and they were 10 years old and you know, uh, there was countries in there that didn't even exist anymore. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty incredible what you can do. And I, I really admire young people that are creating entire businesses out of silly TikTok videos and, you know, online forums. And I remember when I had um, Randy Nonenberg on my show, he was guest number like 45. And he was, he has that company called Bring a Trailer. Mm -hmm. And on my show, he announced they were going to start doing auctions on his website. He had never done that before. He had just posted pictures of stories of cars that had sold. That guy is kicking ass. I mean, he's, he's selling hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of cars and taking commission off every one of those. And it's created a multi-million dollar business just because he liked talking about cars, you know? So Chris got me, Chris got me hooked on that. I've got a little Porsche that we, uh, we were thinking about listing just because we've got, we've got some other cars that we want to, you know, we want to get. And so he got me hooked on that. Now it's kind of a hobby, you know, I go in there and look around and it'll eat up your whole morning if you're not careful. Yeah. You'll, you'll get it going, going seriously. So now let's, let's go ahead. So you, you're San Diego boy, yep. bread, Southern California. Uh, what takes you to Washington state? Okay. Well, <laughs> When I joined Grios, I'd been at an ad agency for 11 years. So I left that, that we were the one doing their catalog for them. And, and then Richard asked me to come on board. So, but he said, I'm planning on moving to the Pacific Northwest. His parent, he grew up in Pacific Palisades, but his, his dad had sold a couple businesses and lived up in the San Juan Islands, north of where we are now. And this primarily reason for leaving California. Well, you know this, you're in California, taxes. Uh, it was not very conducive. This was 20 six years ago. It was not conducive to business. 
It, there was a lot of restrictions. It was expensive to have employees there because it's so expensive to live there, but it was taxes. You know, coming from a family with wealth, uh, taxes are a big problem. So again, there's another misnomer. Oh, the rich don't pay taxes. That's the biggest biggest lie that's ever been perpetuated. They do too pay taxes. Uh, they, as your detailing company grows, you're going to realize. Oh yeah. They pay lots of taxes. They have to. You can't get away from it. Even if it's just capital gains, 15%. Well, 15% is 15%. So you don't get to keep all that. So at any rate, um, I said, you know, I really don't want to move up there. It kind of rains all the time up there. I like California, you know, but he convinced me to go with him. And my, we decided that my wife would uh, retire early. She was an engineer and raise our children. They were very young, five years old and five months old. Um, so we moved up here to the Pacific Northwest and it did take me a long time to get used to living in the, in the weather in the winter. Uh, I get pretty frustrated with it, but it also helped with the development of the car care products because a lot of the products that I created and that the company created had to do with how to keep your car clean when it was getting dirty all the time because it rains all the time. Even, uh, detailing the car inside the garage when it's raining outside. And I wash my car many a day in my driveway in the rain. My neighbors would go, oh, that's that crazy guy from California. Um, so that's what took us to the Pacific Northwest. Um, but I'll tell you what, in hindsight, I'm glad I raised my kids here. Um, I've gotten used to it. I like it now. When it doesn't rain, I kind of go, where's the rain? Um, so I've, I've gotten used to it. Um, it's a beautiful place. And where we live in Gig Harbor, which is away from – what is it turned into Looneyville, Seattle. Um, and uh, you know what's going on up there right now. It's like things are crazy. So uh, yeah, it's been a great place. And, um, and now with what I'm doing, it doesn't matter where I am. This is a great thing about doing podcasting. I could do it on a beach in California. I can travel. Um, I can go anywhere in the world as long as I have a connection to Wi-Fi and I can do what I'm doing. So uh, yeah, so that's what took us up to the Pacific Northwest. So now going, uh, going back, you, you, you start at Griot's. How did that, those early days of detailing, you know, while you're, you're in high school and college, what role did that play in, in, into being a, a, a very high position at Griot's and taking a company to, to new levels? Oh, it, it was huge because I had credibility. I'd already worked on cars. So I could take the memory of working on those cars and go, okay, what were the problems that I had? Mm -hmm. And the whole thing at Griot's, when I joined there, Richard said, look, uh, my original position was VP of marketing mm -hmm. and merchandising and taking the trash out and packing boxes when you had to and taking orders when our two order takers were busy and I had to take an order. So, you know, small business, you do a lot of different things. But it added a lot of credibility because I could go out and say, OK, I remember having these problems with this type of car. Um, and we developed everything ourselves. We worked with a chemical company for a while that helped us formulate things uh, because we, we, at the early days, we weren't making our own products. We were finding chemical companies who would do our own recipes and then we would bottle them at our facility. They'd bring big 55 gallon drums. Eventually, uh, we ended up acquiring a chemical company and producing uh, most of our own car care products. And that took us to a whole nother level because even at that time, even companies like McGuire's were not making their own products. There were some formulators in the business in the US, I think there were only two or three and they would make this stuff for you. Now we did it the expensive way, the hard way, but we could afford to do it. So we did it and we positioned ourselves at the very high end of the market, very early in the business. We just decided we weren't gonna compete at the bottom. And eventually when I took our products into the big box stores, I learned some other lessons there about why does McGuire's have four car washes? 
Well, there's four different layers of buyers. So the cheap Charlie who wants the cheapest. There's the guy who will only buy the most expensive. There's the guy who's maybe smarter than that top guy and will pay a little less for something that does the same job. And then there's another tier down here. So we had to rethink our marketing strategy, even the bottles. Uh, they were saying your bottles are too big. Well, everything we did there was about user interface and um, ease of use. Whereas most of the products you see on retail shelves nowadays are all about how do they fit on the retail shelf? How do we put the least amount in a bottle so it gets used up so they have to rebuy it? We had a different philosophy. We don't want you going back to the store every weekend. We don't want you to use clean your wheels twice and the whole wheel cleaner bottle is empty. So we did a big 35 ounce bottle. You'll remember, I think they still do it at Griot's. They have a big round base. So yeah. it doesn't tip over easily. Yes. Um, we even, we, I still can't believe we got away with this. We didn't sell our bottles with sprayers. You had to buy the sprayer separately. Yeah. And, and for years, I just went, I can't believe we're getting away with this. Now, we weren't really getting away with anything. Again, the concept was reuse the sprayer. Don't throw it away. So we were being mindful of the environment in the early days. And even our products were very environmentally friendly. We talked about our wheel cleaner. We told you not to, but you could drink it and it wouldn't kill you. Um, we stayed away from really harsh chemicals and things, things that were biodegradable. So if they went into the storm drains, which is where, of, pardon uh, me? Look at the attitudes of what it did for you guys of staying high end. Oh yeah. And you know, you touch on something here. It's the same thing I did when I was detailing cars. In my first year or two, I would detail anything. And then I realized, I don't like working on these crummy cars. <laughs> it's not much fun. They're all messed up. The people are, don't want to pay you. They're cheap Charlies. So I just, that's why I eventually got to the point where I only work on high-end cars. And, you know, find your position in the marketplace and stick to it. Do not deviate because once you discount, and for many, many years at Grios, we never discounted. Now, eventually we had to, as the market changed, the internet came around, we started selling through people like Amazon and we were even competing against ourselves a little bit there, but um, you need to define who you are in the marketplace. So if you, if you don't mind working on a variety of cars, that's cool too, because then you can maybe have a variety of skill sets in your shop. Uh, you know, Joe works on the crummy cars, say crummy, but the lower end cars. Bill is a more skilled guy. He'll work on the middle tiers and Freddie is the expert. He'll work on the high end stuff, the Concord level stuff. Um, so we'll have those different three tiers of, and you can do a menu type ABC car care. But if you only want to be at the top, make that decision and stay there and then become the best of the best of the best at the top. And that's what we did at, at Griot's, even with the tools and things that we sold. Um, we just tried really hard. And then when everything migrated from Europe to Asia manufacturing, that was a challenging time because our machine orbitals, which we originally sold uh, Porter Cable, which is something I learned by going up to McGuire's and talking to them. Um, when Porter Cable was sold and they went from being American made to uh, Chinese made, uh, the quality just was crummy. And and this was, you know, it's changed a bit now, but back then that's what you were dealing with. And even our high-end manufacturers of tools, um, German tools, they were making them in China so they could produce them for cheaper and you could see the quality. So that's when we decided, okay, we're going to make our own. So we found a manufacturer that was higher level that could brand our own stuff. And that's what we were all about is branding. And for your listeners out there, we all know that uh, creating a brand that's how you end up having something of value to sell. And uh, I even tell people now, if you're creating your own brand, 
um, maybe you don't name it after yourself because in 20 years, that person might not want to buy your name, but they might buy GS detailing versus Gary Smith's detailing. Uh, so be thinking long-term about where could the value be later for a potential. So like you yeah. did at a young age. Yeah. You know, in your exit strategy, you know, is, is somebody's, is, is somebody is, 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 uh, is, is uh, Robert O'Brien going to want to own Gary Smith detailing at some point? Right. And no. Yeah. I, I wish I'd been smart like you, Rennie, because um, when I finally decided to stop detailing cars, I basically gave all my clients to a, a young kid that lived in the neighborhood. And I said, here's a business for you. I, I probably could have sold it, but you know, this guy would come over and help me from time to time. He had a good propensity for things. And I said, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore because we're going to have a child and I'm busy with my career trying to build that. And so um, I'm going to give you my clients. And I, you know, I was very sensitive to that because I called all my clients saying, hey, he's going to be doing your car now. He's a good guy. I trust him. And uh, I had some that said, I'll pay you three times if you keep doing my car. And I ended up keeping about six clients and I would just do those on the weekends and that's what helped my wife and I save for our first home. Oh, so, yeah. Look at yeah. that. So, <laughs> you know, you, you're directly not involved. You're automotive. Uh, you're not as, as neck deep involved in detailing. But I'm sure from an outside, looking in and, and you're constantly touching detailing, you know, because you're a car guy. What, what, what changes have you seen, good or bad, within detailing? What, what, what have you noticed from kind of being a little bit distance these days, you know, mm -hmm. the changes you've seen uh, in our industry? Well, the chemical changes have been pretty massive, even since I left Creos seven years ago, because when I left Creos, I took a year off, my wife was really ill, she needed to be cared for. So I was home. And that's what led to me doing what I'm doing now. I was trying to figure out something I could do for my house and still care for her because she had some serious health issues. And my son gave me the idea of podcasting. Uh, but when I look at how it's evolved, because I've been going to SEMA, this would have been, if, if they have a SEMA this year, knock on wood, we'll see if they do. Um, we have no idea. When I had Wade Kawasaki, who uh, runs Coker Tires and all those brands, um, I asked him the question. He goes, there will be a SEMA. That was, that's his mindset today. He said, if they tell us we can't, then we can't. But that's our plan. We're, we're going to have a SEMA. So this, if I go this year, uh, if there is a SEMA or when there is, let's be positive, uh, it'll be my 31st. And that's where I typically run into you, but I've been going to SEMA for over 30 years. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's Gary. So car care, I, I've seen over the last five, six years since I've left the industry, a migration to the composites, the coatings, all those, which used to be all professionally installed. Now they're selling them so people can do them themselves. Uh, there's all these, you know, remember when nano coatings came out, which I don't even know if that some made up word or something. Um, so there's been a migration, but even more so my, my bigger thought is, uh, is it a, and I'm going to be pretty bold and step out on a branch here. Is it a dying deal? And here's why I say that when we were building griots, the baby boomers were at their strength and they were migrating through really powerful parts of their lives and careers. They're making money. There was lots of them. I mean, a lot of baby boomers, those X, Y, gens, millennials, the, I don't know what they're calling them now, Zs or double Zs or aughts or something. Uh, <laughs> I can't keep up. Um, there aren't as many of those following. And the other part of it is, an, is just not as many people own their cars. Uh, I was at the BMW dealership 
late last year having my M3 serviced and I was asking the sales guy, I bought seven or eight cars from them over the years. I said, hey, what percentage of cars do you lease now? And he said, oh, it's over 65%. Wow. And I go, okay, those people, they're not going to spend a lot of money having their car care for because they don't own their car. They rent their car. Then you see this big migration of young people using more Uber lifts, people who aren't getting their license. You know, Rennie, you and I were at the DMV at seven in the morning waiting in line to get our, when we were, when yeah. we were 16. Yeah, I think I was the second, second guy and somebody beat me, you know, because my mom couldn't get moving fast enough to take me down there. So I see this migration of not only what I believe is a shrinking market for car care, the, the physical products, but there's a, there's a silver lining for you detailers here, um, is I see that shrinking. But I also see us baby boomers aging and we're not, we're starting to get some pains and aches and, you know, maybe we don't want to detail our car every weekend. We're at a point in our lives where we've either sold our businesses or we're, we have money. Um, so we might pay someone to take care of our vehicles for us now as we get older. So there's that opportunity, that silver lining. But I do see, I, I think there's a demographic that's shrinking here a bit of just the sheer number of people who are willing to take care of their vehicles combined with the large number of people who don't even own their vehicles because uh, we go back to finances. We've been, I think we've been duped in this country for decades that it's okay to be in debt. Uh, Buy a mattress, pay it off in five years or no payments for 24 months. And uh, you know, have immediate satisfaction. Go buy that new purse or those new pair of shoes. You don't have to pay for it now. Put it on layaway, credit cards. Um, you're going to hate that purse you bought by the time before you even pay it off. And so we've been duped into the idea that you should always have a car payment your whole life. What a, what a noose to put around your neck, you know, uh, to always have that debt lingering over you versus there's lots of crazy people like me that, and I'm, I was a victim, not a victim of it because I made my own decisions, but I used to buy a new car every three years. That's what I did. I didn't worry about it. If I could go back and have all that money, I would have done it differently knowing what I know now. And that's what I kind of tell my kids is keep your car a long time, you know, until it's dead and, um, and buy a car. Like my son just bought his first car himself. I bought my kids cars when they were in high school and in college, but I said, now you're an adult, you can buy your own car. And he went out and found a car that was three years old. And he goes, dad, I bought this car for less than half what it was new. The, the original window sticker was in the glove box. But he took his time. He knew how to find the right car. And so he saved himself, you know, $35,000. And smart use of money, right? So I think the, the chemicals are changing, of course, but also the demographics of the people who are going to be using these now add to this, the market of car care products is tenfold bigger than when I started. Massive. I mean, there's, there's everything out there and I keep seeing more and more stuff. Now, you know this, Rennie, and I think most of our listeners out there know this. A lot of this stuff's all the same stuff. Yeah. It really is. There's only a few formulation blending companies out there. Now they can modify, they can put a different scent, different color, maybe make it thicker, thinner, uh, do this, do that. I learned how to do all that back in the day, but it's basically the same kind of stuff. If you even look at cleaning t sulfate, just as a cleaner, there's a German guy that invented that stuff. It's in shampoos, it's in car washes, 
it cuts grease and cleans really well. And it's still in all these, most of these products. So uh, I, I see it really challenged. I, I don't know that I'd want to be formulating and selling car care products right now uh, because I just see it changing. And if you have an online business, shipping heavy liquids oh. is very expensive. I can't, can't tell you the checks I used to sign when I was at Korea, not only mailing catalogs in the postal service, but mailing heavy liquids and then dealing with them. Are they going to get there without being broken and leaking all over the place? Um, that's another big challenge. And of course we all now, especially with this pandemic, we don't go to stores anymore. Right. So everything is shipped to us and uh, which is great. Saves time, but yeah, it's, it's a challenged market, I believe, but there is a silver lining for people that, care for cars because I believe there still will be a nice group of people who still enjoy their vehicles. They find joy in those and passion. And if you can create a business that makes their life easier, because that's what detailing is all about, I will come and get your car. I'll bring it home or I will come to you in the case of mobile detailing um, and I'll do your car for you. Um, okay. My life just, I just freed up a couple hours. That's great. I can spend that with my kids or myself or whatever I want to do. So there's, it's, it's, it's definitely changed. I think pretty radically in the last six, seven years I've been at oh, it. Has. You know, coatings have come into it. You know, here's an interesting point is that, you know, the baby boomers, the guys, you know, the car crazy people, the, the, the people that gave us our passion for automobiles. And then it's, 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 it's through uh, osmosis. It's, it's worked its way down through uh, to younger generations is mm -hmm. that, you know, the tuners, the tuner crowd back in the day, yeah. I remember taking our, our kids to a show and we, we drove our, our classic Chevelle up. And I remember there was a Mitsubishi Eclipse there that had Lamborghini, you know, doors. doors. Yeah. And the car was, it was a young person. And I remember my kids, we had a People's Choice Award. And I remember all four of my kids voting for that Eclipse that had a $600 door kit on it. <laughs> uh, and some painted wheels, and that was it. But here's the deal is that crowd now, um, those tuner guys, they're the modern-day, you know, car, car guys and gals. Right. And here's the other side that, from a professional standpoint, is a lot of people, to Mike Rowe, I'm a huge Mike Rowe fan also, a lot of people don't know how to use their hands anymore. And yeah. that plays out for professional detailers, especially now that, that we've got coatings into play. And, you know, it's, it's, we've got detailers. I've got friends of mine. I won't mention their name, but uh, two brothers and, you know, they're, they're doing two, $250 an hour each. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. In a detailing company, they're killing it. Um, yeah. You've got people making money in this industry, even in uh, middle of Arkansas, that's doing $150 details that they're able to crank out 65, 75, $85 an hour. And back when we got our start, that was unheard of. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, making a living at detailing was really 20 years ago. You, I would not have told my kids, even 10 years ago, do not follow me into the industry. Right. Now, it's a different story. You know, well, and again, there, there you have it. If you take a, a sliver segment, but you charge more, you do better. Right. Uh, and that sliver segment is a declining group of people, but they're still there that love their vehicles, yep. uh, that want that done. 
then you, you're going to have enough business to keep you busy Absolutely. and, and maybe even more. So you've got to think about hiring people and doing that, but that brings in a whole nother level of how to manage people. You got to deal with their tax roles and all that and space requirements and rent and, you know, all these things. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's still a business, but I, I, I wouldn't deter people at this point because Again, now you think about, I had to get on my bicycle and pedal around and put cards on windows. Now you've got this magic device of the computer where you can send people automatic, you know, after a month, hey, is your car dirty? Where you go, you know, it rained. Everybody's car's dirty right now. I could clean cars today. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So there's all these tools and young people know how to use these tools uh, much better than some of us old folks. I'm still trying to learn how to use them the right way, but... uh, I mean, how could I get, I've, I have listeners to my podcast in over 80 countries and it blows me away. Like, who are those 38 guys in Cambodia that listen to cars? Yeah, every day. I'm, who are these people, right. you know? Yeah, yeah. you know, the world's become a small village, you know, compared to what it was. Before. In a way. And if you think about um, taking advantage of situations here, we have a pandemic going on where you have to be so careful and okay, there's another opportunity because how do you sterilize a car? and keep a car clean. How do you convey to your client that when you bring the car back to them, you won't bring COVID-19 back to them because maybe you're carrying it. You don't even know you have it. And now you've made them sick. So there's a whole nother opportunity for another segment of your business to go, Hey, we do a sanitation service for an extra 20 bucks. Right. Picking a number out of my head here. And people that want to stay safe will go fine. I'll pay that because I don't want to get sick. Um, So amazing. Cause we just had our first training last week. 92 days, uh, you know, it's the longest I've gone in 16 years. Yeah. And one of the things that we had to introduce that kind of slowed us down is we had to take and deal with dealing with the virus in future issues that the world is going to see so that we're never shut down or never seen as uh, non-essential again. Mm-hmm. And, and so we came up with a system of using true EPA certified disinfectants that will kill COVID, you know, yeah. Yeah. a system that realistically will achieve that, not with uh, smoke and mirrors and steam and, you know, rub, rub, rubbing a silver towel across something and, and yeah. calling it done. You know, we legitimately sure. did it. With that, I think, Chris, Chris, you had a question about COVID and, and Mark's, Mark's business. Yeah. yeah, well, I was just curious how it affected your, your current business, if at all. Um, you know, just, and what kind of changes you've had to make to adapt to it? Great question. I've been asking my guests on my Cars Yeah podcast, the same question. Um, At first it didn't at all. I work from home. Uh, So instead of wearing out Michelins now, I wear out slippers going down the hallway. Um, You know, I took my car in for service, as I mentioned earlier, uh, end of the year. And they said, Mark, you haven't driven your car. Like in the last two years, you've only driven 620 miles. And I went, yeah, well, I don't have to go anywhere anymore. You know, I'm that that's cool. And when I travel, I take Uber to the airport because I don't like leaving my car at the airport because somebody will ding it or something. So how has it affected me? Well, at first it didn't at all. But then some of my sponsors were calling going, we're having a challenging time here. Um, we might have to drop you uh, for a while and not advertise because typically advertising is the first thing that gets hit, which it really should be the last thing, in my opinion, having worked in advertising and marketing, but it's, it's an easy thing to tick off, right? We'll catch up later. So I had some challenges there and I just told my, my uh, sponsors, I said, I'll keep promoting you if when things are better, you'll come back. 
And if we can catch up with the money you owe me, even better. Uh, they all did that. And so it was okay. Now for a few months, yeah, I wasn't earning as much. Uh, and then trying to continue to land new advertisers during that time was almost virtually impossible, though I, I did pick up one. Um, so that was a bit of a challenge. Uh, but the other part of it was I've seen an increase in my listenership for the last three months of 10 to 15% per month. Now I record or I can, I can monitor who's listening to me by looking at what's called my RSS feed, which is how my podcast goes out to the world. And I can look at those reports every day and look at how many people are listening every day. And so when you start to see that compound growth of 10, 12, 15% a month for three months, all of a sudden I'm going, oh my gosh. So I could call my advertiser and say, guess what? Now there's X many number of people listening to your advertisement on my show. And I'm not going to charge you anything more, but I just wanted you to know there's a benefit here because more people are at home. They have more free time, perhaps they're trapped. Uh, the other thing was launching the buy, sell, hold podcast that adds, adds a listenership there because I'm advertising through sports car market. They've got a fairly good reach of listeners and clients that subscribe to their magazine. So they're promoting them. So I benefit there a little bit. So I've seen this at least at this point as a, uh, I hate to say it's a good thing, but when I've seen that, cause before I wasn't seeing that kind of growth. Um, I've done this all bootstrap. I mean, I just have not spent money advertising. It's all through social media. It's, it's probably the wrong way to do it, but that's the way I did it. And so now all of a sudden I'm going, oh my gosh. So now I'm approaching people for advertising for 2021. And now I can go out there with much bigger numbers. And now they're going, oh, okay. That's getting, you got a lot of, of nice uh, numbers to listen to uh, people listening. And since I'm so niche focused in the automotive sector, um, it's very easy to target automotive type uh, businesses to go yeah. out. So yeah. It, not, yeah. Not a shotgun approach. You're kind of snipering it. Well, a lot of podcasts and I've been on a lot of podcasts and business podcasts is a good example. They're very broad base. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I used to have this talk at Creo's garage about acquiring customers where I go, um, you can't go duck hunting at night in the dark. And the idea was that we were trying to capture source codes off the back of our catalogs. And some of our cars, call center people just wouldn't do it. And I was getting so frustrated. So I had to paint an example. And, and what I did was I pulled a barbecue into the office and I asked somebody for a $20 bill. And the office was like, mm -hmm. so I get a $20 bill and I literally lit it on fire and just watched it burn. And everybody in the room was like, you could hear a pin drop. And I said, this is what we're doing by not capturing those source codes. It's like going hunting for ducks at night and you hear a quack and you point your gun in the air and you have a shotgun and you pull the trigger and then you wait to hear if the duck falls. You can't do that. You have to target. So you have to go out with a scope with a rifle and look exactly at the duck you want and be able to see it. So you've got to do it at the right time with the right weapon, with the right scope. And then you know exactly who you're hitting because we were hitting that top tier. So the same with the car detailing business. You have to know who you're going after and who you're hitting. So for me, when I created Cars Yeah, I just decided I'm going to niche down to where I, my love, my passion, what I know, and that's cars. Now, I could have niched further, and people have done it, and I know some of them, and we are talking on one right now that have niched to car care industry podcasts. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good place to start because as you grow your listenership, then you can start to expand back and open the doors a little bit. 
And if you look at somebody like Joe Rogan, who just landed a hundred million dollar deal with Spotify for his podcast. I mean, you think about that guy. And if you look at his history, you know, he was used to just interview other comedians and then he kind of started to branch out. And then as he grew his audience, he got more and more famous people. So now he's had, you know, Elon Musk on the show and I mean, people in all different sectors. Of course, yeah. and, and his if, audience is huge. You've got people that are in oh, the yeah. 70s and my kids listen to him. Yeah. Yeah. My, my son does too. So again, he, he kind of niched down and then he, he broadened. Now he was already kind of famous. So that helped him. He'd been on TV and stuff, but, right. um, but that tells you the power of podcasting because uh, I even Spike Ferriston, who uh, had a TV show, Car Matchmaker. He's been on my podcast twice. And, and the second time he came on, he was launching a podcast. And I said, you already have a TV show. Why are you doing a podcast? He said, I think it's going to be more powerful than television. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. So you've got a, you've got a, a successful couple of podcasts going now. What was some of the, the challenges and misconceptions when you first began? <laughs> that it would be easier. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, which is kind of silly because I knew it wouldn't be, but because I was going into an area that I had no knowledge of at all. I mean, I, I had friends going, what are you doing? And after I left Grios and spent some time at home with my wife, you know, I started trying to figure out what am I going to do now because I'm too young to retire and I, I don't like the idea of retiring ever. I want to be doing stuff. Right. And as I said, my son gave me this idea because he was listening to podcasts and I'd never even heard what a podcast was. And I just started investigating it. And even back then, I had a lot of self-doubt. I think it was more self-doubt in me because it was an area that I had no knowledge. Um, I wasn't famous because at Griot's, I was the guy behind the scenes. Right. Richard yeah. was the, Richard the guy. Was the yeah. And I still have people today that go, you worked at Griot's Garage? I, yeah, yeah, I helped build that brand. I was the president of the company. But I wasn't, but we didn't have a big social media presence back then at all because mm -hmm. Richard wasn't into that. I, he still isn't really into that. He's kind of a very private person. But um, so I had to like reinvent myself, which was very challenging. And I think the biggest challenge I had was how to build an audience quickly. And one of the ways I overcame that was I decided to do five shows a week. Um, I think I'm still the only car podcaster that does five shows a week. Yeah, I think so. Everybody said, how are you going to do that? And even my mom said, how are you going to find that many people? And I said, I don't know. I'm just going to try it. If I have to throttle back and it doesn't work. And I'm really proud to say that in six years now, uh, May 28th was my six-year anniversary of launching Cars Yeah. I've only missed one day. And I did a rerun. And that was the day my dad died. And I learned a really valuable lesson because he had been here the week before, um, before he passed. And I... I, I always would put shows what I call in the can, but I didn't really do that. And he was up here. I flew my kids in to visit with him. We spent the whole week. I didn't do any shows that week. I mean, they were still being loaded up because I'd already recorded them. And then I thought, okay, come Monday, I've got a show for Monday, but not for Tuesday, but I'll record a show on Monday for Tuesday and then I'll get caught up. Well, he, he got very ill and he passed on that Monday. And so um, I didn't have a show to do Tuesday and I was flying down to San Diego and I was really distraught. And, you know, my wife's like, your dad just died. Don't worry about it. You know, yeah, I, said, yeah. I said, well, I, I, you know, I'm, I have customers, I have listeners, I have sponsors. And so she said, well, do what TV shows do, do a rerun. And so that's what I did. But I learned a lesson there that I need to have shows. So for instance, the show I record today will go up the middle of July. So I'm, I'm about three to four weeks ahead of myself. Wow. You're yeah. Right. So just to, to be safe. But I think the, the, 
the key thing was just to, you know, I really didn't know what I was getting into, but I did a lot of research. I even wrote a big, long, very detailed business plan. Uh, I created what I call my avatar, my ideal listener. Mm -hmm. And I always think about who that is. And it's, it has kind of stayed that way. I have an older listener base and that's proved to be a positive for my advertisers because those people have money. Got you. And they spend money. So I'm a, typically it's a late thirties to mid sixties listener out there. And even if you look at my Facebook following list, it's all old guys. Gotcha. You know what? Most old guys have money. That's and, okay. You know, and that's good to advertisers and they have cars. So yeah, it was just, it was a learning progress, but I'll tell you the other thing I did, and this is important. I mentioned it earlier is I called as many podcasters who would talk to me and I just asked them a lot. I had my list of questions. I said, I won't take more than 15 minutes. And I would just go, they always ended up being two hour conversations because people like to talk about their business. And I learned a lot by doing that, by just asking a lot of questions. What's your biggest problem, challenge? Um, how did you start? How, how much money do you spend on marketing? And I got all different kinds of answers, but I learned to pick and choose. And, uh, you know, you just had it's seat time. It's like detailing cars. You got to do one, then the next one. And each one will teach you something. It, it's yeah. that you just get you just get used to and you you know it's it's we're still pretty relatively new but you know this little dang coronavirus we went into doing what you did we went into you know um mega support our, our podcast and live events didn't they they at that point it wasn't there uh as a business it was there as a lifeline right it's that we went from filling that we just brought as many people and as many wide discussions on a, to calm people down. You know, a lot of these people are small entrepreneurs. A lot of them are new. You know, detailing's got turnover. Right. And we just feel the responsibility of just getting to people's hearts, minds, and getting them to calm down, you know, and settle in a little bit. Well, so and you think about what's happened with, you know, they're doing online auctions now. Uh, right. I mean, this is, people are really innovative and they'll figure out a way. And so all of a sudden you're seeing, like I did my first virtual wine tasting last month with Adobe Road Winery. And, you know, if you told me I would be doing that, I would have gone, why would I be doing a wine tasting? Well, the guy that owns a winery happens to be Kevin Buckler, who's a racer, right? So, um, and they do this series called uh, the Racing Series, which I think I showed you guys before. The back of my, my mug here has one of their labels off their wine bottle. Wow. 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 <laughs> and I, I peeled off the bottle and stuck it on my mug. So, um, yeah, I get creative and, and think out, you know, the old term outside of the box. But uh, the fact that we can do so much of this now, online Zoom meetings, and you can share that. I see podcasters like you going to vi visual podcasting. I've thought about, should I do that? I haven't decided that it's going to be right for me quite yet. Uh, I found that a lot of my guests are reluctant to be on a podcast. Number one, because they don't quite get it sometimes. Number two is people hate the idea of being interviewed. Yeah. Scares them. So I don't even call it an interview. I call it a conversation. And we, I, we, I edit we, my shows. We started a new program in our, in the mafia. And every Monday we have a mafia member a, a business owner interview uh, somebody within our group. And it's exactly for that reason, because I, yeah. Chris and I were, you know, brainstorming over a coronavirus, over a Corona uh, virus. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we, 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 I said, Hey, you know, one of the biggest things, Chris, that will teach these guys how to communicate better is interviewing and to be interviewed. 
And well, did you ever do Toastmasters? Oh, yeah. Huge fan. Yeah, the bell, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Huge fan. Huge fan. And so I, I have noticed that when I interview people now, since I edit my shows, I go back and take out all the ums and errs and, yeah. and things. So now I try to be very a much more eloquent speaker. I'm still not super good at it, but I'm aware of it. And the, the challenge there is now when I listen to other podcasts that don't edit their shows well, yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, why would you have not taken that out? Um, because my goal with Cars Yeah is that I've invited a guest to be on the show. I want them to be really proud. And most people are not good speakers, public yeah. speakers. You've never trained at it. You can, anybody can be a great speaker. But you have to practice a lot. And, a lot. and I'll tell you, I was just looking at a, a, a thing this morning. See you later, hon. My wife's heading off to heading off to school. Uh, so uh, Tony Robbins is a, a good example. I met Tony when I was, uh, this was 30 years ago. I was coming out of the ocean one morning, uh, early morning Dawn Patrol surf session. I was going to go home, shower, go to work. And there's this giant guy running down the, the beach. And I'm like, yeah, that guy looks so huge. His head is giant. And <laughs> turns out it was Tony Robbins. And I just finished listening to his very first set of cassette tapes called Personal Power. And I said, Tony, I just listened to your tapes. And he was like, oh, and he got all excited. Well, long story short, I landed him as a client. We started doing marketing material. For I'll be doing. Wow. And I learned a lot from him. I mean, he's a very dynamic speaker. But he, he told me this once. We were coming up with a new package design for one of his books or something, uh, tapes. And he said, no, 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 you guys, you guys are trying to reinvent the wheel. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. People have already done this. Just put my spin on it. Well, that's the worst thing a, a designer wants to hear is to copy somebody else. You never want to do that, right? But he said, look, that's how I've created my whole career is I read a hundred books on how to motivate people. And I picked the best parts out of each book and I just put it in my own voice. And then he said, I got in front of a, a mirror, waving to my wife as she drives away, um, got in front of a mirror and I just practiced all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm just looking at myself and how my head was. Is my head down or my head up, you know? Am I turning my body? Am I moving my arm? I mean, and if you look at him now, and I went through his firewalk thing, which he had back in the day up at his house in Del Mar at the castle, he called it, which is where his office was. And yeah, he gets you so excited, you'll walk on fire. I mean, he's, you know, he could probably get you to drink poison Kool-Aid uh, to talk about, you know, the, that evil guy, Jim Jones. But he practiced what other people were doing, but put his own spin on it. And so when it comes to speaking and, and being a better communicator, and that's, we all see that whenever we're at a coffee shop and the person making your coffee is not very eloquent the way they, they don't greet you with a smile and a cheer and they'll look you in the eye, all those things that we know now, uh, you just have to practice at that. So I always tell people practice, you can, on every computer now, you can record yourself. Oh, absolutely. And just practice. I'm shooting a, a series of videos right now for Covercraft. They've been, they were one of my first sponsors and we do these little, uh, it's called car care tips with Mark Green for Covercraft. And so luckily I spent, you know, last year I did a year of cars, yeah, television. So I had 13 episodes of my TV show that were on Mav TV. So I got to practice being in front of a camera and so forth. But even now out my garage doing these little one, two minute things and you do it. Um, you know, you have to stop. And go, oh, okay. I got to remember to stand up straight. You know, don't, don't slump over, you know, and, you just watch and practice and learn and, and watch other people. Yeah. That's how yeah. you learn how to detail, watch other people detail, uh, learn how to speak by watching the best of the best. And now it's available. YouTube, you can watch speakers, the Ted talks, watch 
20 TED Talks and you'll see two people that are super good and really think about what made them so good and then watch the bad ones. What are they doing that's wrong? And copy those things, you know, don't reinvent the wheel, as Tony said. Joe, Joe Rogan, uh, he's himself, is that I think that the art of, you know, you've got Jocko, he is himself. <laughs> Another one, yeah. Uh, you, you know, you, you've got all these different guys uh, and gals that they're just the people they are. And I think there's a, you can, you, you know, Toastmasters is one of the, one of the, the jewels that people just don't, I, I've talked about it in our training sessions since the day that I started training, my first training. Uh, you know, when we moved to Big Bear, I started going back to, 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 to Toastmasters. There's two divisions up here. One hated the way I spoke. And I said, what's the way I speak? The other one loved it and fine-tuned it. Right. Well, and I believe what's happened as a result of social media is people are more forgiving right. of those who are not trying to be an actor or someone else. They're just being their self. And you see it in photography. I think there's been a massive decline in great photography because mm -hmm. people are now trained to accept lousy photography as good photography because yeah. they've seen so much of it. Uh, so the same with speaking skills. And, you know, I'm still shocked sometimes. I'll go for a walk and I'll listen to Joe Rogan and he's advertising for one of his, his sponsors, which are paying him probably lots of money, major brands. And he's, you know, he uses four letter words. Yeah. I don't do that. I mean, for my kids, if they ever hear me say a four letter word, they're like, oh my gosh, what happened to dad? He got really <laughs> mad. But that's Joe. So the fact that he's saying that, you know, this new uh, loan company is effing great. Part of me goes, oh my gosh, they're, but that's Joe, that's his audience. And I had to, for a while, my son had to kind of teach me that. Hey dad, that's his thing. It, it's Absolutely. like uh, Gary uh, Vaynerchuk, uh, yeah. Gary V, same thing. I mean, I wish he didn't do it as much because it, it starts to lose all of its cred, cred, <laughs> cred. Well, I think there's a time, you'll know when I come onto mine and I, and I do start dropping some, some colorful, you know, words. I'm really, it's something I'm really mad about or something I'm super excited about, but I leave it for those in, in my, in person, you can always tell when I've been to drill with the national guard uh, or, I, you know, recently when I were called out, you know, yeah. uh, because I curse a lot and it <laughs> takes me weeks to get off that. So let me, let me, let me ask you this. Another yes, question yes. we're going to go into to Chris asking a couple is that, you know, everybody talks about their successes they've done what they've done right. What's something that you did wrong in business, but you've learned from it. There's there one example you can give us. Oh yeah. Not trusting my gut. Ooh. Not yeah. trusting what I felt was going on with somebody, a business partner, a person, a client and ignoring it, hoping that it would improve. And every time I've done that, it's bit me. Sometimes it bit me very hard financially. Yeah. Uh, you have to listen to your inner voice because I'm a firm believer that it's almost always right unless you've got a really bad inner voice. And if you do, you need to find a way to change that either through therapy or mentoring with very strong people who can help you view the world in a better way, a more positive way. But every time I haven't listened to that voice, it starts to eat away at you and you think about it all the time and like, Oh, I sure hope that person doesn't screw me or is nicer or changes. Never happens. Uh, you got to listen to that in their voice. You listening to this, Chris, Diane, you guys listening to that? <laughs> and the other part of this is it's, this is a really good quote. 
it's one thing to realize there's a problem. It's quite another to actually do something about it. Yeah. And most people know there's a problem going on. It could be with a coworker, with a relationship, uh, with a client or a business relationship or somebody you're working with. But it's another thing to actually take action and do it. And every time I haven't taken action, it's bit me very hard. Let me tell you, let me, let me back that up. We had, we've had two, at least two situations in the last year where we were doing business with these two individuals and right at the get-go, almost upon meeting them uh, in, a, in, a, in a more private environment, I had a gut feeling and we didn't go. We all had the gut feeling. Mine was strong and we decided to play nice. We decided to, and you know, it came back in both, both instances in under a year, uh, the truth was, 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 was shown. Yeah. So the minute you start to feel that way, um, my suggestion is to really sit back. In fact, what I've started doing is I even write down why, what am I uncomfortable with? Yeah. And then address that with the person and be very careful how you listen to how they answer your concerns. And if after those concerns are addressed, you feel much better about it. It was just a misunderstanding. You can go, okay, I feel that's great. Then you can move forward, but remain careful. But if they give you answers that, again, that gut's going, this person's not telling me the truth. They're lying to me. This isn't, you need to do something about it and get out of that situation. Uh, it, it's just like being in a, uh, let's say, uh, a, a bad part of town, let's say, and you just don't feel right about walking down the street. You need to get off that street. Yeah. <laughs> those are all those worldly senses. And they're, I think they're DNA built into many of us. Um, and you talk about people who find themselves being victims all the time. Well, why did you go out at two in the morning? Oh, boy. And both you know? the cases I'm talking about victim, uh, you know, always the victim, always the, you know, asking great, great, asking people for great advice and they don't freaking take it and then you <laughs> fail, but then going back and blaming other people for it. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's amazing. So Chris, yeah. you've got a couple of, 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 of uh, additional ones before we go into the car questions. Yeah. <laughs> well, Hey, you know, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned mentors a minute ago and uh, relationships. Um, and I know you've built a lot of those relationships, you know, over time. How have they helped you kind of achieve your goals and help you get to where you wanted to go? Well, uh, greatly, actually. And that's another thing I always encourage people is it's the age old, uh, we are the culmination of the people we spend most of our time with. And there's a, somebody said that quote. I can't ever remember the person, but it's true. So your mom was always right. Pick your friends wisely. Hang out with the right people because when you hang out with the wrong people, uh, they lead you astray. Mm. And they lead you down a bad path. So when it comes to mentors, I always have tried to pick people who I admire that are on, I put on a very high pedestal, people that are very successful. And most of them have been very receptive to me asking them questions and approaching them as long as you do it politely and you're not pushy about it and you, you honor their time. Uh, it's like whenever I call somebody, the first thing I ask them is, is now a good time for you to talk? Let them give them the opportunity to say, actually, it's not. Could we talk 
next week or tomorrow or in an hour or something like that, because you'll get their full attention that way. But that's honoring people's time because my belief is that time is, is our most valuable asset. And that's because we don't know how much time we have left. Uh, you could get this terrible COVID and die in two weeks. Could happen. Get hit by a bus. Um, you could be in the wrong part of town and rioters surround your car and kill you. I, don't go to downtown Seattle. Uh, just stay away from Seattle. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. I had to. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Don't, even, don't even get me started. Um, but, but mentors are important, and it's important to reach out to people, and most people will give you time. I have a lot of people who reach out to me, and I've just become kind of a mentor to some people that I didn't realize was happening. They just they realize Mark's willing to give me their time uh, because I think that's important thing to do, especially with younger people, to help them out. And the other thing is to really listen when you ask a mentor a question oh. is ask the question and shut up because many of us, and I'm a victim of that or not a victim of this. I'm, I'm, I could be accusing myself of this. Sometimes I'll start to think I know their answer and then you start to over talk, but that's where podcasting has helped me because I've learned to ask a question then back away. And I've been on podcasts where you don't even get a chance to talk almost. And you're like, why'd you even have me on your show? You did all the talking. So you need to learn to listen very, very carefully. And listening skills are one of those things that a lot of people probably don't have. And it's probably because of social media has enabled people to not be a good listener and actually to be a rude responder in, in many ways. But I think it's important and narrow down that group. I think it's much better to have a tight group of very strong people than a very broad group of weak people. Uh, it'll benefit you. In, in a huge way. So I'm listening. Here's the thing I want to take and make a statement. I think a lot of people right now, and I'm not going to age bracket this, is they want instant success. They see your podcast. <laughs> they see Joe Rogan. They see our little tiny thing that we're doing, and they want that. But what they don't realize is the pillars that that has been built off of, the foundation that comes from that. It's a lot of years and a lot of learning and a lot of relationships a lot of uh, uh, expensive lessons that come from that. And I'm not saying that you can't be, you know, 25, 30 years old, 19 years old and, and build something way quicker than we did. Our goal is to allow you to do that. We don't want you to be 40 or 50 something and still struggling. We want you to do it a lot sooner than we did. Right. But Mark, you just said it. You got to listen. You got to shut up. You got to listen. Then you got to take directives and, and put your own spin to it. You know, put your own spin to it. But you can't spin it out of control where it looks nothing like what the person just told you. Right. You don't learn anything speaking. Uh, you don't learn anything when you're talking, uh, only when you're listening. So, uh, and that's why with my podcast, I, I try to, I ask, I have a formula. I ask the same questions and I've always kind of thought maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I should come up with more free flowing. But the challenge with free flowing is it makes the guests uncomfortable many times because they don't know what's coming. So they're going to be more guarded. Uh, I like them to know what's going to be coming their way so they can, they can have thought about it more eloquently. So uh, yeah, find, find some people that you really admire and reach out to them. And nowadays it's a lot easier. And I'll tell you another little secret, call people on the phone. People don't call people anymore. I can't tell you how many people I've, I've wanted to get on my podcast and I finally got their phone number and called them and they've answered. And it's like, Oh, they're there. And, and you know, be ready when they answer, but again, be, um, thoughtful of their time because everybody's busy. And yeah. so try to limit that, but it's important. Got, it's a great question, Chris. 
I've got one big, huge guy that I want to bring on that is a uh, one of the most powerful men. I had a chance to meet him uh, back in uh, 04. And my goal, Chris hasn't even heard it yet, but I'm not going to ruin it right now. But uh, next year, I'm going to get a little better at our podcast. And when we start opening it up a little bit, I'm going to get this guy on. I don't know how, but I'm going to. Well, I, my listeners know that my snipe is Jay Leno. I have tried to get Jay Leno on my show forever. I've actually walked up to him four times in the line of pebble, introduced myself again, handed him my card, invited him to be in my show. He's a very nice guy, very polite. Thank you. Goes in his pocket and probably ends up in the laundry. You know, he doesn't really need me, but, uh, and I'm on a first name basis with his personal assistant because I call every couple months and say, any way I can get him on, I'll get him eventually. I hope the timing is maybe right. Jay doesn't really need me, right? He's right. already kind of famous. But a lot of it is persistence. Um, I wanted to get uh, uh, Denise McCluggage, who we lost several years ago. She was a famous race car driver in the 50s, really a, a woman leading the way uh, for women back when women were like supposed to stay in their place. And I tried and tried to get her on my show. I would be very persistent, but and I'll get to the word in a minute. And finally, she called me one day and she said, hello, Mark, this is Denise. She goes, I'm sorry I haven't been getting back to you. I haven't been feeling well. What I didn't know was when I got her on my show, she passed away a few months later uh, that she'd been ill and she was dying, basically. Um, But she said something to me. She said, you're the most politely persistent man I've ever met. And I said, well, that's a nice compliment. Why do you say that? She said, because you've been reaching out, but you're not pushy. You're polite, but you're persistent. And that went a long way because a lot of people want me to do interviews like this, but they're just rude. They're pushy. They're on me all the time. And I just like, I don't like that. So polite persistence. I've always practiced that. So I have a formula. I'm chasing at any given time, literally over a thousand potential guests. I have no, if I pulled up my, I have a little file here, it's Excel spreadsheet. And I right now have on that spreadsheet, 1,427 names. Wow. That's one of the things I was going to ask you with all the guests that you've interviewed and all the other people, you know, in the industry and everything. And now I hear that you've got this long list of potentials. How do you manage all that? (laughs) How do you keep track? (laughs) Well, I've got an assistant. He's the guy in the mirror behind me. Uh, He's also my IT guy. He's really bad at that. Uh, I keep meaning to fire him. You know, again, it's, it's a formulation. I do what's called batching. So certain days of the week is when I send out two to 400 emails. And I don't use this automated system that a lot of people use to set up meetings with people. I think it's impersonal. It's confusing to some people. Um, They don't really like it. I take the time to make a personal message to everybody. It's probably a foolish way to do things. And I'm sure a lot of folks are going, what a waste of time. But it seems to have worked for me. What's happened in the last year and a half is more and more people are now coming to me. I don't have to chase people as much as I used to. In fact, uh, I think pretty much for the first half of this year, I've really not sent that many emails out to people. Wow. Um, Because they're coming to me because now I have an audience. I have a presence. People know what I'm doing. They hear from other people. The other thing I do, and this is something for detailers. I hope every detailer does. At the end of every interview, I ask my guests, do you know one person you could introduce me to that you think would enjoy this experience? And every one of them gives me at least one. Some give me 10, 20. And they email me. They email their friend. Hey, Rennie, you should be on cars. Yeah. And then they CC me and then I take it from there. 
So I don't have to, th that long list I just quoted you, it's an actual list of names. Um, I don't have to go to it as often anymore uh, because my minimum goal is to record five shows a week. That keeps me where I need to be. But some weeks, uh, the most I've ever done in one week was 19. Wow. So uh, this week I'll do seven. And yeah. that includes two buy, sell, hold shows. So, uh, and I, I call that a light week. Um, typically well, it's I'll, more. Uh, I'll, try, I'll try and help you out with uh, Jay Leno. When we start to have car shows again, I, I always see him around at those. Uh -huh. um, I'll, hit, I'll hit him over the head with a club for you. Hey, 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 hold on, hold on. We've got a, I'm just going to tell you, we've got our own podcast, Chris. You know, I love Mark, but, you know, I wouldn't mind working this as a joint venture. Chris, the, the check's in the mail, Chris. It's, exactly uh, it. Hold on. Who, yeah. you, who the heck are you working with, buddy? So, well, you know, again, this is all part, and this is the other thing, is uh, what Chris just did there is a great example, and that's offering help to people whenever you can, yeah. no matter what. You know, and I know you're teasing us, Rennie, but, uh, but it's uh, – yeah, it's, I'll tell you, I just, I'm super organized and I'm very professional. So the way I communicate with people is extremely professional. I've heard from many of my guests saying, you know, I've been in other podcasts. Nobody is this spit spot as you are. Um, and it puts them at ease and it makes it more comfortable. And then they're willing to tell their friends who could be Jay Leno's, you should be on this show. It's a nice show. It's a good guy. He, he shows up when he's, I've even been on, you know, I've had some profet, uh, I should say celebrities on my show. And dealing with some of them, I just kind of go, oh, my gosh. I mean. How did you get where you're at? Yeah, on how unorganized. How in the morning, you know. Yeah, how unorganized you are and unprofessional you are. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's just kind of interesting to me. But uh, I, I'm just very methodical. So I do what I call batching. I, every day of the week, I have certain time periods that I do certain things. I found, I'll give you a little tip here, Chris, when you're trying to find people. Thursdays are a good day to send emails to people. Hmm. They tend to pay attention to them more. Uh, yeah. Monday, Tuesdays, no good. Everyone's back to work. They're busy. Wednesdays, kind of that hump day. Fridays, yeah. by the middle of the day, Friday, they're like gone uh, or they take Fridays off. So Thursdays, I found, are a nice little touch point. So That's there's, cool. there's – yeah. you know, And that might work for detailing. It does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. We share the same exact – ironically, this wasn't in the script, right, Mark? Right. We, we, we always tell people don't do anything. Wednesdays and Thursdays are the only thing time to do it because the Monday, Monday people are pissed off because they're back and they're busy and they're slammed. Tuesdays they are catching up for Mondays. Wednesdays they've, they've kind of caught up Thursdays. They're taking a little bit of a breath and Friday they can't wait to get to Saturday. Right. Yeah. That's pretty much it. And that just works week after week. Now this pandemic thing has twisted all that around. Oh. So you know, with people working at home, I, I get a lot more responses now from people early morning, late night right? that yeah. I would have never gotten before because, you know, if they're goofing off in the middle of the day, they feel guilty. So after dinner, they feel like they have to do some work. Maybe, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I work all the time. So I, I always hear from people, oh my gosh, you responded to my email and it's nine o'clock at night. Absolutely. Um, you know, so I'm like, well, it's the only time you got time to do it. You know? Sometimes. You calm down and, and you're paying attention. I don't know about you, but my, you know, all my emails are forwarded through my phone so I can get a, a glimpse at whatever's coming in. And sometimes I'll see something and I'm like, oh man, I got to, you know, I can take care of this right now. I'm supposed to be, you know, watching an old classic movie with my wife, but my, you know, does your, does your mind ever really shut down? And, no, and, uh, no know. even I was, I even finally got to watch Ford versus Ferrari and 
um, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm answering some things on my phone and my wife goes, put your dang phone down. I thought you wanted to watch this movie. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yes. Yes, dear. So let me, let me ask you this. Your dad, your father kind of was, uh, you know, somebody, I'm very sorry to hear that you, you lost him. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a bummer, right? I, I, I can relate, uh, you know, September 27th last year, I lost my mom and yeah. uh, I didn't have a dad, you know, um, I do, but, but yeah, wasn't there for you. No, never really had a, a relationship. So she, her and my grandma are kind of everything. So my heart goes out to you. And it, Thank I, you. I get emotional when I hear somebody loses a parent because until you lose that parent, you have no idea what the emotions are going to be. Um, it's 10 to a hundred times worse than what, what you could dream. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the only thing more horrible would be losing a child, um, which I can't imagine that, but uh, yeah. And I still, to this day, I've lost my dad three years ago. And to this day, I'll see something and go, Oh, I want to send this to dad. And I'll go, Oh, okay. right. it's yeah. not there. In fact, I have, um, this is another little thing I might suggest to people. Now that we have these devices, you can record things on. Yeah. Interview your parent. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and save it. Uh, I never did that. And I have three phone messages on this phone. I've transferred to my computer so I don't lose them that are phone messages from my dad voicemails. Yeah. And uh, yeah, interview your parent because, uh, in fact, I just had a guy on my show named Henry May who's a, a really nice, uh, he was a professor for many years. He was interviewing his mother and found out that there was a family member in their family that were the first black automobile manufacturing company. Wow. And he ended up writing a book about it. This gentleman who was a slave in the South who escaped and came North and started building buggies because he had learned that on the plantation, how to fix buggies. And he built that into the first black owned car manufacturing. Wow. Wow. Now, if Henry, if Henry had never interviewed his mom, he would have never known that. And we, and I, to this day, people go, I had no idea that company ever existed. It's kind of just evaporated into oblivion, but interview your parent and record it. And if you're even smarter, do a video recording. I, I did a, my wife and I, when we were uh, pregnant, well, my wife was pregnant, but you know, we are with our first child, we interviewed, uh, yeah, I was cutting edge guy. We interviewed each other on a, the old little cameras that you used to have with the big battery pack. And yeah. I've got to convert that. For, I think it's on super eight or something. Uh, we interviewed each other about our feelings about becoming parents. And I need to transfer that to digital and give it to my kids. Um, because I think it'll be interesting for them to see us back when we were young, but yeah, records record and, you know, and talk to your parents about their life before you. Absolutely. Because you already know your life with them. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to them about the life they had as a kid and as a young adult and what they did. And that's what Henry said. He said, man, my mom like had, she dated men. Yeah. I, you know, like she she was a musician who traveled around the country playing in honky tonks and things and the piano. So yeah, that's a, something you should do. It's amazing. My mom, um, bless her, bless her heart and her soul, but she would call no matter where we were in the world. Um, she would call each one of us and sing us happy birthday. On our <laughs> she was known for that. She did it. She would wake me up every year. I can remember, uh, on my birthday singing happy birthday to me. Yep. And uh, my wife went through and recorded all those for all of us. Nice. So on my last birthday, with first birthday without her, yeah. my mom sang, sang me. And oh, it is. oh, man. 
not a not a dry eye in the room. Yeah, my mom did the same thing. She called me at six oh six in the morning because that's when I was born. Oh wow! <laughs> and sing me happy. Yeah, wake me up. You know, nowadays I mean I get up early anyway, but yeah, she'll she'll do that every year six oh six. And then she always tells me how I was her virgin birth. They don't know where I came from. And uh, the other thing was that I was she was in labor for like thirty two hours, and you know. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to leave this next question up to yeah. Chris because he's kind of been having a uh, an orgasm about it. Uh, okay. So, so uh, Chris, you want to talk about uh, the Porsche? Oh yeah. Well, we just wanted to uh, we wanted you know our listeners and, and me mostly to uh, hear about your uh, your orange uh, 930 turbo, the orange crush. The yeah. orange crush. Yep. Yeah. Which, which uh, by the way, I was browsing through the latest. Uh, uh, Grio's catalog just uh, two days ago. It's in there I'm pretty, still. I'm pretty sure you still see it in there. <laughs> yeah, they still they still use that that picture, which I actually shot of my car under one of their car covers. Uh, yeah, the Orange Crush. I've had it about 11 years now, I believe. Uh, it was a car found on eBay uh, at night, and um, it was a really unique car. And I found something out interesting since I've had it. It's a one of only three in this color. It's a non-factory color, but it was special ordered under their paint to sample option. And it's a six stage metallic orange. Uh, they painted three turbos this color. It was again, not a factory color. It was a special formulation. One of them was a slant nose. They were all US spec cars. They were all picked up at the factory, European delivery. Well, here's what I learned later, because the guy that I got the car from had told me the story about it. Well, the story wasn't really quite accurate. The car was ordered by a gentleman who owned a Porsche dealership uh, in the Midwest. And I got a call once from a guy who said, hey, I'm following you and I see this orange turbo. I need to talk to you about that car. Well, it turns out this was the son of the guy who owned the dealership. And he said, let me tell you about your car. My dad ordered that car. He ordered three of them. And the, the reason he did it was he used to order special cars from Porsche to get his allotments bigger from the factory. He would pretend that those orders were from customers, but they weren't. They were made up customers. And then he would send his employees to Germany to pretend to be the buyer. In the case of my car, there was some weird paperwork because I, I picked up a car at the factory uh, and Porsche. And there's this document that they give you about tourist delivery. And on my car, I had all the paperwork that came with the car. And there was this woman's signature that didn't match the owner's last name of the car. Well, it turns out that that woman was the wife of the finance manager at the dealership. So they would go over to Porsche, pick up the car, hand the keys back and say, ship it back home. The car would come back to the dealership and he would sell them. And he would always order things very unique. Well, in the case of the orange car, he ordered three of them. He hid two of them in his garage and put one in his showroom, sold it, waited a couple months, took another one, and then did it again. So this guy that called me said, my dad had your car. It was the last one sold. It was in the garage. I used to sit in your car and dream about owning it. I can't believe I, I, you know, I've never forgotten about that car. I was in high school. And now I found it. Is it for sale? And I said, well, everything's for sale, but you're not going to like the price you're going to have to pay me. And so we kind of left it at that, but he said, please call me if you ever want to sell it. And I said, well, again, it's for sale, but <laughs> you're not going to want to pay the price I want for it. So the car's pretty cool. It's got 40, 41,000 miles now on it. So it's been driven some, but it's all original. And it's just, in fact, the picture behind me, 
there. Yep. <laughs> Backwards. That way. Um, that was a drawing uh, by Steve Anderson, who is a friend of mine. We lost him a few years ago, sadly, at a very young age. Um, he did some wonderful automotive illustrations. Um, in fact, hold on. When I was shooting my television show last year, one of my camera guys, his name is Jake Gunderson. He's a really creative guy. He made me do this without breaking it like the last time I took it out. He builds custom models for people. And he yeah. made me a model of my car. Oh, look at that. Very wow. Cool. Wow. It even, it even has a Cars Yes sticker on the rear window, just like my car. Dang. Isn't that cool? Very cool. Yeah, super detailed. I mean, even the stickers in the uh see, I did it again. <laughs> uh -oh. Just don't drop the car. No, that's yeah, that's what I was trying not to do. Um yeah, so he built me a model of that thing and um it's become kind of my my marketing tool. I I I put it out there all the time is Orange Crush. I took the Orange Crush here, took it there. Um, yeah, it's a fun car. I use it in the videos I'm doing for Covercraft now, so you'll see it there. And I just kind of named it because when I got the car, I had a crush on it. And back in the 80s when my, my family was young and we had a new baby and a new house, I wanted a turbo so bad uh, because I remembered the first gen turbos from the 70s when I was in high school. So I remember this girl I was dating, her dad had one and it's like the coolest car ever. And then this is second gen since it's an 87. And so I couldn't afford one back in the 80s. So I finally got it. I had just sold a 72S that I had for quite a bit of money uh, to help pay for my son's college. And my wife, bless her heart, she said, why don't you take a little piece of that and buy an older Porsche that's not as expensive. So you didn't give up everything. And that's where this car came from. Well, I, when I got it, it was at the bottom of the market and it's you know, skyrocketed. Yep. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's my orange crush and, uh, I enjoy it when the sun's out and, uh, you know, it's, it's just a great car. So yeah, the orange crush, you can find it. If you go on my Instagram page, lots of pictures there, uh, follow me on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. So let me, uh, let me ask you this and then we'll wrap this up. What, what are you seeing in the, in the car market in the collector car market? Uh, <laughs> right now with COVID, what, 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 has there been an immediate impact? Is there going to be long-term impact? Yeah. Yeah, there is. I'm, uh, thanks for asking me that. The, the second podcast I do with Keith Martin, Buy, Sell, Hold, we ask that question right off the bat. We ask our, our, list, our guests, what's one word just to describe the collector car market? Um, this week, Carl Bomstead, who's a judge and, and collector, was on our show, and his word was squishy. Ooh. Uh, but when you look at the, the past guests, we, we launched that podcast in February. It's every Tuesday. Um, it's been things like tenuous, um, unprecedented, uh, ever-changing, uh, mixed, confused. And what we're hearing from these people who have careers in that industry, everything from multi-millionaire billionaires to people who own businesses that buy, sell, auction house people. Uh, we just did a show with David Gooding that's coming up. Mm -hmm. They're all saying the same thing. It's all a mess right now. And that's for obvious reasons because the COVID has created um, a mess for financial markets, right? We all saw what happened uh, when the market tanked. You know, it's, it's trying to claw its way back. I haven't looked at what it is today, but every day it's just yesterday was 
pretty nice, pretty good. So it's, it's messed up the market in a lot of ways. Whenever people are uneasy, I think they always revert to what they have passion for, which they'll go out in their garage and have their cars, but will they go out and buy a car? I think you're seeing distress sales now at this point, people who are like, I got to raise some capital. And so I'll let a car or two go or something like that. Right. Um, so you can see some deals happening right now, but at the same time, there's also some uh, high-end cars that are still trading hands in the private sector that you're not hearing about. Uh, we just talked to a guy the other day who talked about another GTO trading hands uh, north of $80 million. So um, that level playing field, you know, they're, they're, I won't say they're not affected by this, but they, they're not affected in a different way. They've got different kinds of life than the average Joes like us. But it's a goofy market right now. And I would suggest from what I'm hearing is if you have a collector car and you don't have to raise capital, don't sell it. Just right. Hold on to sit it. on it, hold on to it. And, uh, but at the same time, there are segments of the collector car world that are probably going to be affected. And they already were to a point going forward, pre-war cars, older cars, even cars from the 50s and 60s, because this next generation of collectors who are coming into their money-making years in their 30s and 40s, they like cars from the 80s and 90s. Yeah. So you're seeing that tick up. I mean, we saw that one Z car sell for over 300,000, and that was an outlier, I think. But you are seeing those cars tick up, Subarus and you know, uh, 240Zs and, and Japanese market cars and so forth. But I would suggest sit tight if you can, just sit back because, you know, we all hope that we will come out of this year and things will get back to where they were, which were very positive from the job market standpoint and from the economy standpoint. We did, but we don't know. I mean, you look at the civil unrest that's going on, what's that going to do to everything? And if you have a really nice car and you live in an area that has some of those problems, are you going to take your car out? No way. Nope. No, you're not going to do that. You're going to hide and keep them to yourself. So, uh, but it's definitely, this pandemic has definitely affected and it's affected the market. Now bring a trailer I've heard has seen record and we're going to be interviewing him on buy, sell, hold next week um, yep. has seen record sales. Uh, and again, all the other big guys that have these uh, live auctions are going, I think we're going to need to do that guys if we want to still stay in business. And they've all started to migrate the Goodings, the Meekums, uh, Bear Jackson, uh, all of them have realized we have to do this. And they're selling cars at those because they've created ways to make the buyer feel more comfortable by having pre-inspections done. You get lots of pictures, you know exactly what you're getting, probably more than if you were there live. Because sometimes when you're live, there's so much going on. You can't talk to the yeah. owner. Yep. You know, and you all hear about these stories of people buying cars that look really shiny under the lights, but they're 90% cars. They weren't quite done that, that most important 10%. So it's definitely affected the world. And, you know, again, you talk about, I talk about everything for sale. If somebody came along and offered me an insane amount of money for my turbo, I might just take it, you know, it would have to be way above what I would perceive market, but I've been lucky. I've done that with the last four or five collector cars I've sold. I've been able to sell them for way above where market was, but that's because I, was, I wasn't I was smart. I was just lucky enough to pick a car that had high perceived value and I took really good care of it and I bought it. I never restored a car because to me, you've got to have a lot of money and, and like to waste money if you want to do that. Buy when someone else is restored. I hear that on my show over and over and over from restoration. In fact, the guy I had on uh, Cars Yet yeah Today, 
um, is uh, Jason Wenig, who has a very high-end shop in Florida. And he goes, yeah, buy a car. Someone else spent a lot of money. Oh, yeah. Money. They're, they're, it's going to be a lot cheaper in the long run. Oh, Listen, oh, yeah. hey, well, how, so how do people follow you? Where, where, where are they yeah. going to find you? Social well, it's, it, I'm easy to find. Uh, you can go to my website, carsyad.com. All my shows are archived there, including Rennie's. Uh, every, sh- every guest has their own show notes page with some details about the show and links back to their business. You can find me there. You can find me on virtually every mobile podcast app. So if you have a mobile device, just go into your apps, type in Cars yeah Podcast, Cars yeah Mark Green. You'll find me there. You can subscribe. I'll show up on your phone or your tablet every single day. I have two Facebook pages, Cars yeah Mark Green. Instagram, Cars yeah Podcast. Twitter, Cars yeah Podcast. LinkedIn, uh, there is a massively underused oh, tool for you business people. I mean, you can tap into all sorts of yep. business opportunities through LinkedIn. Use it. I use it every day. I post every show up on LinkedIn every day. Uh, so use that. You can also find the Buy, Sell, Hold podcast, not only on my, all my social media and my website, but also on Sports Car Market Magazine's website that I do with Keith Martin. Uh, yeah, and follow me, subscribe to me. You can subscribe to my blog. I do a blog every week that I guarantee you can read in one minute. It's very short, sweet. Uh, it's usually motivational in a sense, but has a related car tied to it. And when you do that, I'll send you my free filler up book and your name goes into a hat because I often do a lot of giveaways. Uh, this year alone, I've given away probably about 35 books from authors that have been on my show. So you can, you can get, uh, find me that way too. And, uh, and reach out to me. You can send me an email, mark at carsyad.com if you have any questions. Or if you think, if you have a detailing business and you want to be a guest on my show, I'm inviting you right now. I would love to have you be a guest on Carsyad. Oh, we've got some great people with that, that news. I'll help make that introduction for you guys. I appreciate it. Also, if you go to my website, there's a a tab called resources Mm -hmm. and you can break down my guests because I have so many into their different categories and I have one that's detailers. So, Oh, wow. Hey, so Mark, just to show you that I listen is that I'm going to take something out of, you know, your book that you just shared us on your success. So, you know, we'd love anybody that you've got that you think would fit into our podcast, especially Richard Brio. We'd love to have him on. So okay. any influence with people that you think that would match up. So I did listen. That's my point. <laughs> and so we're going to ask for some guests. Well, you know, Randy, I'm always, I'm always happy to help you and I'll do my best. To you know, I'll end it with this is that wherever we go and we see each other, we always share a smile and a short story. And for the, us that make a living talking, it's really hard to share a short story at events, but yes. we managed to do it. Uh, last time I ran into you, well, you know, we we're SEMA, but uh, the memorable one, is I see you on the green at Monterey. And, you know, this one was at the Quell. Yeah. It just happened to be passing. And it, it just, it's a cool memory for me is that, you know, I always try to tie in a cool memory with people I meet. And to me, just being a kid that grew up in Colton, I never ever thought that I would, you know, be at such a, a venue. Uh, and if I would, I would have been like the janitor, you know, cleaning up something, <laughs> you know. Uh, but to run into you as such a character and somebody that's been, so influential in our industry and be able to admit that memory of running into you on the green, you know, while we're at Monterey, it's well, just, thanks. that's the memory I've got of Mark green. Is- well, I, I appreciate that. You know, this car hobby that we're all part of this passion, it really is not the cars. The cars are merely the catalyst that bring us all together. 
Absolutely. And I get invited to do a lot of keynote speeches at businesses and Concord events and things. And I talk about that. In fact, my whole talk is titled what I've learned after a thousand conversations. And uh, one of the things I've learned is that this car hobby is about the people. So when we all get together again, of course, Pebbles canceled this year, but next year when we're all on the lawn or we're at quail or the jet party or some other concourse somewhere. Yeah. You feel like you have a friend uh, and I've had people on my podcast. I've, I've thought I'd never met. And then they've said, Oh, well, we met, we were at the, on the lawn at Pebble and we talked about an old Packard and I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's right. Oh my gosh. So that's what it's all about. But I'll, I'll leave you all with, with this thought. And it's the primary thing that I've learned about life talking to so many people. And that is we as human beings are at our best and we feel the best about ourselves when we give back to others, when we help others. Rennie, you've done it. Chris, you've done it. When you create a life and a career around helping other people, my podcast mantra is inspiring automotive enthusiasts. When I created it, my goal was to inspire automotive enthusiasts by interviewing inspiring automotive enthusiasts. And when you can find a way in your life to help others, you will be at your best. Whether you know it or not, you'll feel the best about yourself. You go to bed happy at night. You'll wake up excited about helping people. So find some way to do that. If you're a detailer, the fact that you're caring for someone else's prized possession and delivering it back to them, you've done that. You've made them happy. You've helped them. You might even help them learn how to keep it maintained between those detailing sessions by giving them a little secret that you have to help them. That's when we are happiest. And uh, the other thing is if you're ever feeling depressed, if you're ever feeling down about anything, stop and close your eyes and think about what you're grateful for because you can't be upset when you're grateful. And it could be a minor thing. Like I had food to eat this morning in my refrigerator that's pretty cool because there's a lot of people in the world that don't. So be grateful and give back to others. That would be my key message for today. And I want to thank you guys for having me on this, this cool show. Yeah, uh, you, you, you're very, very welcome. And thank you for coming on. And uh, Chris, hey, man, we went a little long, but this is great conversations. We love these long ones when they, uh, you know, it's tough for three car guys and three business guys to get together and keep it short, right? Yeah, well, uh, good things happen then. So, uh, and I'm under I'm under the bell because I've got a, a guest calling in in about an hour, uh, a big heavy hitter, Chip Connor, who's probably Ooh, one of the wow. biggest one of the biggest car collectors on the planet. We'll be recording a show with him for Buy Sell Hold this morning. So, uh, watch for that. Yeah, he's a guy that doesn't do very many interviews. So we got wow. very lucky to land him. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, thanks for coming on, Mark. Chris, always thank you for putting it all together. Hey, there's the Rennie Doyle podcast, and uh, we want to thank our guest, Mark Green, and my co-host, Chris uh, Woolman. So thanks, y'all. Take care. Be blessed, and uh, go out and, uh, like Mark said, count your blessings today. We'll see you next time. Happy detailing. See ya. Thanks for listening.